0: We'll pick up here uh, with the 8th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Well, let's summarize a little bit what's going on in chapter 8. That would kind of be important because a couple of you haven't been here for a week or so. Chapter 8, I call your attention to the first two words of chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning, depending on your translation, it just may have now, but in the... uh, original language of the New Testament, that is a very important structural marker in the book of 1 Corinthians. Because it, and that's what's going on from chapter 7 through the end of the book, Paul is answering questions that the uh, little Corinthian church had submitted to him, presumably in writing, because he says in chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the things about which you wrote. So we're uh, inferring from that that uh, they gave him questions, that they... uh, needed some answers to and as with Jeopardy we have the answer but we don't have the question so we have to try to figure out what the question is. In this uh, section which really goes on through chapter 11 apparently the issue is about their liberty, their freedom in Christ and it must have specifically because of some things he says uh, particularly uh, let's see in verse 10 I believe it is it must have been something like this. Paul, can we, now that we're Christians, can we go into the idol temple and enjoy a meal there? Uh, he talks in verse 10 about dining in an idol temple. In Corinth, as as really was true in most of the Greco-Roman world, uh, these temples, these idol temples, in Corinth there were a couple to Aphrodite, who was a goddess of carnal love, uh, kind of an erotic type of thing, um, uh, they would sacrifice to the god or goddess, and some of the meat would be then eaten in a meal. The rest would be, remaining part would be sold in the marketplace, the agora of, of the cities, like in Corinth. And so that was kind of like a social gathering place. Um, it was really somewhat comparable to a restaurant. So let's just make up a question. Paul, now that we're Christians, can I take my wife down to the idol temple for a meal? They have good steaks down there. Mm-hmm. And so Paul's answer to them is, yes, you have the knowledge, like in verse 4, you have the knowledge that idols are nothing in this world. They're silly things. But that alone can't govern your behavior. And as he made clear in verse uh, 1 through 3, and this is a very important principle that is throughout Paul, the Apostle Paul and throughout the New Testament, love, love must Balance or temper our exercise of liberty. <clears throat> now, if I utter that sentence, do you understand that sentence? Love must temper or balance the exercise of our liberty. Does that sentence make sense to you? Yes, it does. That's a very, very, very important principle. And if 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 you don't have that principle then you don't have guidance in the scriptures of how to exercise your liberty and freedom in Christ. And remember, let's do one more point of review. Liberty or freedom in Christ doesn't mean the freedom to do whatever you want. You do not have the freedom to sin. It's the freedom to do, uh, well, let me rephrase that, the freedom that we have in the non-moral or moral things of life, the things to which God has not directly spoken in his word. And last, I think it was last week, maybe it was week four even, but we listed some things in our culture today that would, it would apply there, things like entertainment choices, leisure time choices, food, alcohol. I mean, those kinds of things that the Bible does not specifically address, but we have the responsibility, using his wisdom, to make decisions, and that's what he's talking about here. So Paul puts, correctly, Paul puts eating meat that had been offered to idols in an area of liberty. Because he says, you know that all things are from God, and good things come from God's hand. But that's not the only thing that you you should use in exercising your liberty. Okay, now that brings us up to where we left off last week. I draw your attention to verse 7, verse 10, in verse 12, in those three verses, the Apostle Paul uses the term conscience. And I think it's appropriate for us to talk a little bit about conscience. It's ai don't want to say it's a mysterious word, because I'm not sure that's correct. But it's one of those terms that we really have to think about what that means in Scripture. Um, I have on the board uh, a number of references with a particular modifier that was used to describe various circumstances in the New Testament about conscience. For example, in Acts chapter 23, verse 1, Paul says, I was persecuting the church with a good conscience, which is really interesting. He was killing Christians as a member of the Sanhedrin with a good conscience. That's interesting. And then in verse, where we are right now, chapter 8, and it's this, exactly the same scenario, although under different circumstances, in Romans 14, he speaks of people with a weak conscience. And then in First Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, he speaks of those with a seared conscience. And I listed at the bottom, I think the goal is for us to have a mature conscience. So that really, by that, I mean this list, this kind of grouping of how the, uh, and itemizing how the term conscience is used in the New Testament, helps us to understand something. We have to really nail down what conscience means. How could Paul persecute the church with a good conscience? How could he do that? So I have defined, and I, I believe we talked briefly about this last week, I define conscience, this is how I think about it, as a set of convictions that we develop. A set of convictions that we develop in these non-moral areas of life. So, I mean, I'm not going to write all this down, but I've the, the, tried to think, and I thought about this and studied, even wrote a little article on it, but I come to the conclusion that the best term to use are convictions that we develop in these non-moral areas of life. Now, uh, those convictions are not, do you know what a, you want know to mean by conviction? You know, it's something, it's a deep seated, deep felt um, understanding about something. And so, and again, it is so important to remember it's these non-moral areas. We, in, in the exercise of our freedom, we do not have the freedom to sin. That is not what liberty is in Christ. It's in these non-moral areas to which the Lord has not directly spoken. So, But it's my responsibility, indeed, uh, it's, it's only wise for me to develop convictions for me in entertainment areas of life. And my choices and the convictions that I develop are more than likely going to be different than Jim's. And they're going to be different than uh, uh, than, than Terry's or, or, or Dave's or uh, Andrew's or anyone else. And so, in a sense, in these non-moral areas, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And those convictions can become can become something in our lives that guide us in how we're going to live our lives before Christ and in an honoring way and bring glory to him. Now, what I could choose to do is this. I could choose that, well, here, these are my convictions that I've developed, and they really work well for me. So I'm going to universalize them for everybody. And I'm going to say, Jim, if you don't have the same convictions I have about some of these things, yeah, I'm not really sure Jim's a Christian. Did you know what he did last night with his wife? They went to see, and I don't even know what to put in the blank, and I'm raising serious questions about his sanctification. I don't have a right to do that. I don't have a responsibility to do that. He does, as I do and every one of you does. But we might find that we're going to make some choices that are different. I worked with a colleague for many years who, when he was raising his children, I think I might have told you, that chose not to have a television in his home, because he wanted his children to learn and develop, the, in their leisure time, to become readers, to read lots of books. He was an English professor, and he loved the classics, and so he read the classics to the kids. He read the Moby Dick's and the Little Women, as well as the Chronicles of Narnia, and all those great classics to his kids. I'll tell you right now, all four of them are really good readers. They love to read. Then after his kids were, re- were raised, Peggy and I were over there for dinner one night, and they had just redone their basement walked down, and over in the corner was this black box. <laughs> and it was a television. And I said, I won't give you his first name, you have a TV. My, oh, my, you're slipping into debauchery. <laughs> Kidding him, he just said we got tired of running a TV every time there was something special. <laughs> now you, you see, he never. Very few people knew that they, they chose not to have a TV. They weren't. You know, that's just a choice. Their conscience, for where they were, was seared. That's the wrong word. Was 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 sensitized that that's a good choice for them. So <sighs> Paul could say. I persecuted the church with a good conscience because it was in line with my convictions I took with my Judaism and my Pharisaic upbringing and that I was on the Sanhedrin. I believed I was doing that for God. A person with a weak conscience, which is the, the uh, part of the uh, person to whom he's directing some of this epistle, what does, what does that mean? He says in, let's make sure we've got this clear, he says in verse... Um, 7 their conscience being weak is defiled verse 10 not his conscience if he is weak and then verse 12 their conscience when it is weak weak in what sense not tuned tuned in to the Holy Spirit
1: unclear
0: all right, no, no, wait a minute. I'm thinking that's, that's good. But let me camp I'm on what you're that. What but do you mean, I mean, not tuned into the Holy Spirit? Well, I, I the Holy believer. Spirit isn't in their life yet?
1: Well,
0: it... I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just trying to yeah. clarify what you mean yeah, by that. I was
1: sensing just over the quick overview of it, that he was speaking to them as believers. That's correct. That they were operating in times with... A weak conscience. And I was thinking maybe he was referring to them not being tuned in to the conviction of the Holy Spirit to give them, a, you know, give them a different set of convictions now that they believers.
0: How would the Holy Spirit go about doing that?
1: The closer that I am in relationship, and it's, and it's, it's the more I can be in relationship with the Lord, the more sensitive I become to. What is pleasing and not pleasing in his eyes. So, in my sense, so, eating meat
0: offered to idols is pleasing to the Holy Spirit. They just don't know that. I'm sorry. So, eating meat offered to idols is pleasing to the Holy Spirit. They just don't know that. No,
1: when he's. Their thought that they shouldn't eat meat, I think, was the issue. They, they, they were. They That's what I mean. The, the
0: Holy Spirit is pleased and they eat meat. They just don't know that yet, so they're no, weak. No,
1: no, no, not necessarily.
0: What do you mean? You're never going to talk again in class, are you? No. <laughs> yeah, I really wasn't talking about the meat part, but
1: I'm talking about the general.
0: Okay, now I, I don't mean but to I put you on this. Copies. No, I don't mean <laughs> to put you on the spot, but that that that's the role of the Holy Spirit. There is very, very crucial, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure you you've got the right way to frame that role of the Spirit. So I mean, I'm not. It's it's just if the Holy Spirit is pleased. And they're not doing it, then he's displeased. Is that the right way you want to say that no. So do you that want to, while I want to say it. <laughs> Okay <laughs> what is the Holy Spirit let me let me if you don't mind just ask you one follow-up. What does the Holy Spirit use? How does the Holy Spirit help us develop a let's use another word he uses a strong conscience. How does he help us develop that?
1: I think he gives me insight into the ways of the Lord and, and, and what he sees and how he operates so that I understand the characteristics of Christ better so that I can try to be sensitive to that and emulate that in my life.
0: When Paul talks in the earlier part of this chapter about knowledge and having knowledge, Do you remember we talked about that last week? The content of that knowledge is understanding that idols are nothing, there's only one true God, and then applying all that truth to life. So what's happening to these weak people? They're not taking those grand truths and applying them in a freeing, liberating way in their lives. Another way of saying that is they're not taking these grand truths that are really doctrinal truths and having the wisdom and the discernment of how to apply them as I live my life. Because again, when we're thinking about liberty, some of the choices that Jim makes and the choices that I make may be different in these areas that are not areas of sin. And so eating meat sacrificed to an idol, the weak conscience is the person is not well developed in their thinking, their application of biblical truth, and they're easily, therefore, drawn back into their old life. So the scenario is they see you go into the idol temple, you have a stake there with your wife. They say, well, if he did it, I can do it. They go in and all of a sudden they're drawn back into their old way of life. And then they go into the temple prostitute, and all of a sudden they're ruined. You know, my, the old Baptist preacher used to say they're backslidden.
2: For Dr. Heckman, is it, a, it is a sense here that if you have a weak conscience, you could easily be seduced into thinking about justification by works?
0: Well, that would be perhaps another consequence. That maybe wouldn't fit here, but that would certainly be another consequence. Or, this is what a seared conscience is. Seared is like you know, with fire or hot, iron. You, know, you sear it. Um, so that in this sense, you become convinced of something that sounds like it's a freedom issue, but it really isn't, and all of a sudden you're rationalizing all kinds of things. In my view, and I don't mean to bring up a very volatile subject, but in my view, I think that's what's happening to many Christians when it comes to homosexuality and same-sex issues. The culture is so rushing so far ahead that people are saying, well, maybe the gracious, loving thing to do is to just sanction it after all maybe we've misunderstood it and you start to rationalize that which you're stepping outside of areas of freedom and you're stepping into areas to which God has clearly spoken but I don't like the way he said it and that's what Paul is talking about in, in First Timothy there about a seared conscience these are believers who step by step by step have come to actually embrace something in the name of freedom that God has already clearly spoken about and that I think i that 's not the only issue I would use, but I see some of that in the way some evangelical Christians are looking at some things, but it can lead then to massive and I would say that 's a massive error, but a massive error where you start to believe that justification is by works, and I can earn it and I can merit it so it's this is a this is almost a slippery issue conscience and i paul is the only it 's used in the New Testament. It's used a total of 31 times. Almost all of them are by Paul. So that was a very important term to him.
1: Can I follow Please. on
0: this? Please. Mm-hmm.
1: I would like to get this out of my verbiage because it's in my brain. So what I'm hearing is that those two people, one can go in and have the state understanding the freedom that they operate in mm-hmm. and, and not getting caught up in the food issue and the idol issue. And then this other couple can go in eating that meat and can to quote the phrase, backslide, so to speak, because they fall back into the mindset of mm-hmm. the
0: old thinking mm-hmm. of the food. Being mm-hmm. of this mm-hmm. idol. Exactly. They both be doing the same
1: thing, right? but it's what am I thinking about in terms of what that means to me in my relationship?
0: Right. Yes, let me let, let me take it uh, just one step further and, and add uh, one or two additional thoughts. The person, let's let's say again, strong versus weak. That's the contrast the Apostle Paul is using here. The strong, the person with a strong conscience, is they have clear understanding of the knowledge that idols are nothing, that that meat is is a good thing. It comes from the Lord. All things are of the Lord. The earth is the full of the Lord. Abundance there, among all those things. So I can go in and I can enjoy that as a good gift from God. Not bothered by idolatry. Not bothered by the prostitution going on in there. But the weak brother goes in, because he saw you do it. He goes in, and all of a sudden, yeah, he's enjoying that steak, but he sees the temple priestess over there. And he remembers, three weeks ago, I went into her, and copulated as emulating what Aphrodite does, and he's drawn back into it. Do you follow? So it's that kind of it's that kind of a scenario. The weak conscience, brother or sister, is the one who may intellectually understand, yeah, idols are nothing. And, but boy, I just came out of this. And I'm so weak in that area, I really don't understand. And so I'm drawn back into the old lifestyle. So Paul says, you who are strong for the sake of the weak, don't go in there. He says, if food causes my brother to stumble, I won't eat it. That's what he says in verse 13. So you give up your rights. You have total freedom to eat in the idol temple. But you give that up because there are many weaker brothers and sisters who they cannot exercise their freedom and liberty without being drawn back into their old lifestyle, because they're so weak at this point. So the goal is to become mature. Fred, your you're hand. Um,
2: in regard to this, the people that we're talking about, humanity in general, has to have We're talking about
0: Christian humanity.
2: Well, that's that's my next step. Okay,
0: because that's the subject here. Right, not, and
2: that's that was what I was going to say, that this portion of humanity has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. How does knowledge... I mean, we have we have brothers and sisters that are at different levels of knowledge of these scriptures. How, what role does that play in the maturing process and these decisions that are being made by that individual?
0: Oh, it's absolutely essential. It's absolutely essential. It, it's absolutely essential uh, that your your a mature conscience is gained by saturating your mind and your heart with the things of God, his word. And at the, and as as that process goes on, you begin to see things and understand things the way God sees them. And then I want to add words that come particularly out of the Old Testament. wisdom, understanding, discernment, discretion are the results of that. I hope I'm not becoming too abstract, but I mean th- that's why the scriptures, especially the Old Testament wisdom literature, talks again and again and again about, about this being a process. This takes time. The beginning of a wise life is fear of the Lord. What's step one? Understanding God, who He is, worship for all, and adoration of Him. That's the beginning point. And said so Solomon in the first nine chapters of the Proverbs, he's talking to his kids. He wants them to be wise. But he understands they're a bunch of fools. And I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, but because they're young. They're just getting started. They don't have that maturity. And he says, I want you to understand. I am someone who has lived. I want you to learn from me. That's wisdom. Bible says, both Old and New Testament, young should learn from the wise uh, who are older. Doesn't mean necessarily that with old age comes wisdom, but Often that's true, especially someone who's walked with the Lord a long time. They have a tremendous amount to teach young people. Our culture and our typical evangelical churches are going against that grain. We don't let the young have connections with the older. As a matter of fact, we set up a counterculture where the young never see the old. They don't even go to church. They have their own church. And I'm being general there, broad strokes. But, and so we should then not be terribly surprised when a lot of young adults are not very wise people. Wise in scriptures or well, it's just basic grunt wisdom of how to live a life. So th- th- these, are, these are incredibly valuable thoughts about conscience. And honestly, that's one of the reasons I wrote this, this paper. I, I struggle to find anything worthwhile out there on conscience. Not many people have done much work on it. Everybody thinks they know what it means. You start digging into it. I really don't know what it means. How can Paul have a good conscience and kill people? How can you have a good conscience and kill Christians? Born of
2: the spirit. Hmm? He
0: was born in the spirit. Plus, that's correct, but his convictions were rooted in Judaism, which was wrong. So, a Hindu can have a good conscience about something they're doing, and it's absolutely wrong because it's based on knowledge that's false. A Buddhist can be doing something with a good conscience, but it's based on a worldview that's totally false. Yes
3: because your Wash, right yes sir because a conscience is something that's like programmed by your thinking exactly so, you know you can you can convince yourself that, exactly uh, stepping on a bug is wrong and you'll you'll have like a, your conscience will be tugging at you about how wrong this is and there's mm-hmm. nothing really wrong about it Universally mm-hmm. it's just you program your your own conscience to that's right
0: that. The knowledge on which you're basing that action is wrong. That me stepping on a bug, I could be killing the soul of someone that lived... That could be my grandmother. I mean, I'm making up a ridiculous scenario, but that to some extent is. In in Nepal, there are a group of Buddhists who wear masks over their face to minimize the amount of bacteria they inhale. Because bacteria is life. I mean, it's that... You go to that extreme, and they do that with a good conscience. Because, and that's why Paul, and it's really, I hope you're, you're following this, you tie conscience to knowledge. And knowledge, knowledge can be false knowledge. It can be knowledge filled with error. And you're acting on that false knowledge filled with error, and you have a good conscience because you think you're doing, you see what I'm saying? That's why scripture is so important for us. Because scripture cleanses our mind, of all the false things that we assume to be true. That's what he's saying here. He said, we have come to the point where we know, and I'm paraphrasing again verse 4, that idols are nothing. It's a bunch of wood and stone. And we also understand, secondly, that all things that God gives us are good gifts to be enjoyed, because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, he quotes. But he says, this is the clincher, As you have good knowledge, it's based on sound doctrine. That's not the only thing that governs your actions. Because there's also sensitivity, a love for your weak brother who hasn't come as far as you have.
2: Some of the Muslims are killing people now. I mean, (coughs) a woman gets a divorce, or she she has adultery, and so they... Here we are as christians sitting around this table and we go, well we can mark those people off as we wouldn't witness to them for anything because they're lost that's probably not the right attitude that we should have toward those people because they are totally void of spirit and so if we reached out to one of those people in true christian love i mean genuine Christian love it might bring them to know Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. as their Lord and Savior so I I know it's so easy when we hear about these things in the paper to put up these walls between those who are lost and those who are um, not yet won we can't really decide; only God decides where ultimately they will be. So maybe we should be open to all of Well, sure. how many how many chances do you give somebody to? You know, someone's just a repeat offender. Let's take Nico Jenkins for instance. You know, he knew darn well what he did when he did those murders, and should we, you know, keep practicing good behavior and try to rehabilitate? rehabilitate somebody or do we
0: just draw a line and say I'm done with you you had too many chances That's a great question. you are raising uh, the question of justice mm-hmm. versus mercy right. and so in Jenkins life what does justice look like My own view is, and I I think this is what I see in Christ's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, justice must be separated from mercy, in a sense. Um, In other words, if the state, which the state in God's economy of things, Romans 13, Daniel 4, and other places teaches us this, the state is to carry out justice. And if he has murdered people, etc., justice means, and that's the theme of scriptures, retributive justice. Then the state must hold him accountable. Which means now you know, this is all over the place, but it could even involve capital punishment, or he loses his right to live, or he will spend the rest of his life in prison. That's justice. However, mercy means that Fred will make an appointment to go out and see him in his prison cell or wherever they would have a meet. Start to talk about Jesus. And actually, see, justice, justice must be carried out. This man must be held accountable for his actions. Mercy says he will be held accountable for his actions and he will have to either give up his life, capital punishment, or spend the rest of his life incarcerated. But mercy means I am now trying to reach out to him about something eternal because when he dies his life is not over in this life he has to pay for his crimes he has done something that is wrong in the eyes of god and god has given the role of the state to administer that justice and the state is wrong if it doesn't carry out that responsibility so you see what i'm saying
2: that's a, i think that's a great explanation thank
1: you that's-
0: I mean, that's, the, that's how we can't say, well, let's just let him go. That's wrong. And God would hold the state accountable for saying, ah, it's okay, we're not going to hold you accountable for that. That's absolutely wrong. Yeah. Who wants to live in a society like that, let alone what God says about it? And I think with, uh, with a Muslim, uh, whether they're across the street or across the nation, it's, it, it's a much different situation because to, for you to get over to Iran and start witnessing Good luck. The odds are you're not even going to be able to get into the country. And if you lie to get into the country to say you're a businessman, you're going to do business, you start preaching the gospel, you'll be in prison within a couple of days. So, I mean, I, I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but there are lots of other things that are part of this. What I wanted to do before we leave this, because this is a teachable moment here, this is, what I, this is how I want you to think about this. I have given this a lot of thought, and I hope I'm right on this. But what I see the Bible saying to us is this. The Holy Spirit uses Scripture and when I, when I say Scripture, I'm talking about all the different ways we're exposed to... Uh, I misspelled Scripture. All hey, the ways... We were way, going to you, huh? we're
2: point that out to you. Oh, I know you were. All, all, all the different ways in which we're
0: exposed to Scripture. Reading it ourselves, being in a class like this, in church where you hear a pastor preach and all those things. That's all that I mean by this. Okay. So what this did does, the result of this is now you have God's perspective on things. Okay, let's use the word Paul uses here. You now have the knowledge that is to govern your actions. And the result of this is you now begin to make a series of choices that are characterized by wisdom understanding, I'm running out of space, discernment, these are all words in the Old Testament that Paul, excuse me, Solomon uses to talk about how we live our lives when it comes to these non-moral issues. Because <clears throat> wisdom for me, understanding for me, discernment for me, discretion for me in these non-moral issues is going to be different than Jim or Andrew or others. Because especially the word discernment Discernment is, the the Hebrew word there, you you gain insight into the consequences of your choices. That's what discernment means. So it's insight into the consequences of my choices. To go to a movie is not necessarily a sinful choice at all. But a wise person is a person who, based on all they've learned about God and all they've learned about God's values and his perspective on things, it may be wise for me not to go see that. Or making a decision about alcoholic beverages or making a decision about tobacco or I mean any of those things, you have to learn and develop conviction based on God's perspective of things that will result in a life that characterized by wisdom, understanding, discernment, and discretion in these areas where to which the scriptures have not necessarily spoken and there's so much of that in our world today. So that then you, you are developing that strong conscience or you've thought through a lot of things. And you're, you're beginning to develop convictions that really in your life are conducive to your walk with the Lord. And so, see, what everybody wants me to do, and now with, as an educator I've had hundreds of these requests, just tell me what to do. Just tell me. And I'm saying, no, 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 That's, I'm not going to bind your conscience with my conviction. Because the, things, the choices that my wife and I have made may not be the right choices for you, depending on you and all the different circumstances. See, it's so easy, because when you start asking me to bind your conscience with my convictions, and you ask me to keep updating it, and I start sharing more and more, I become the legalistic godfather of your spiritual life. And that is the worst role you can put me in, and it's the worst role you can be in. Because God wants you to grow up and develop your own. And that takes time. It takes a lot of time in the scriptures and an understanding of who God is. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible understanding of his grace. And it's all those things, and it's just people don't want to do that. They want the fast-forward, easy method of being a wise person. And it doesn't happen that way. But that's the way I want it. I want everything quick. No. I just, I will not, when people ask me questions about, should I read this book, should I go to this movie? I mean, unless it's an obviously an, an extreme example, triple X movie or something, obviously that's not an issue. But, you know, those kind of, I remember a mom saying, should I buy Pokemon cards for my daughter? <laughs> I am not going to answer that question. <laughs> I share a couple guidelines, for, but you have to make that responsible choice for you and for your daughter. Should I read the, um, the Harry Potter books? Should I let my daughter read the Harry Potter? Now, now the issue for young girls is the Hunger Games. Should I let my daughter read the Hunger Games books? Should they go to the Hunger Games movie? I mean, I have strong convictions in that area of some things, but my convictions don't necessarily matter in terms of how you're going to make those decisions. Somebody had their hand up.
1: Jim, I'm, the comment I wanted to make earlier about the question you brought up, which was good, was I think about uh, Ted Bundy. I'm showing, I Uh I'm not prisoners. Uh, I showed them the documentaries because a lot of them were younger and they figured they didn't know, but... He goes through a lot of what he did, and it's rumored, or he stated to his lawyer that he's killed at least a hundred women before he was executed. But then there's a thirty-minute, if you have a chance to watch, it's really good thirty-minute interview that James Dobson did with him just hours before he was executed, and James Dobson confirmed in that interview that he had given his life to Christ. But to hear some of the quotes of him back in those documentaries, and to hear the way he talks. In 1979 or 1980, whatever it was, he was talking about some of the issues with what he did and his concerns about creating other Ted Bundy's. That mercy was really a big thing because Mm -hmm. you could tell it was a different -hmm. different man. Uh, But there would be a lot of people that probably would question that. But uh, it was really interesting to see his interview with Mm Dobson and have him talk about those things um, and what he had done. Mm -hmm.
2: That's one of my takeaways today is justice versus mercy because I, I battle that stuff all the time. He, mm-hmm. One thing you think about, it. why did we give this guy another chance? But
0: everyone deserves mercy. Yep. Everyone yep. Deserves it deserves takes a very, a very position. wise uh, leader, a wise judge, a wise whoever it is, to know, um, th- to know when to extend mercy. Do you know what I mean? Justice is very clear core value of God. But aren't you thankful that God doesn't choose to deal with us only in terms of his justice? If he did, there would be no hope for us. Absolutely no hope. But God has that immense, incredible wisdom of of when to give us mercy, but still hold us accountable, so that through that process we grow in our dependence on him. And it's just an amazing thing. But of course, as you know this is a central teaching of the biblical Christianity, is the cross is where the justice of God and the mercy of God meet. That's where they meet. Because justice was done. Jesus dying on the cross was God's justice. Because Isaiah 53 says, he poured out his wrath on his son. And if we appropriate that by faith in Christ, we will not experience God's wrath. We will not experience his judgment because Christ took it. Course. Nobody else had their hand up.
3: Well, right. I was just going to add the question, I think, was kind of like, well, how many chances do we give people? Mm. And my conviction, not trying to push on anybody else's, also is, um, you know, Jesus taught us to forgive 70 times seven. Yes. And, he, and, and so our job isn't to, I think we just, we go and we go and we offer Jesus yeah. over and yeah. over and over and over. Yeah. Regardless of the, the the separation of the of, of the justice for what they did on Earth, to me, exactly, our job is to is to continue to bring Jesus to them until the Holy yep. Spirit does His
0: work. Perfectly. Because we have God's perspective, mm-hmm. yeah. we know there is an eternal perspective to things. Mm-hmm. And that person, when they're when they die and their physical body is separated from the spirit, that's not the end of them. They will go on living, and that's what eternity will about the. Issue is where are they going to spend eternity? That's the issue. It takes great, and this is this is something that our children, I'm talking about our young children, young children don't have this. Just by name, I mean a six year old is not a wise human being. A teenager, by definition, is not a wise human being, right? And it's just uh, we, why would we expect them? But it's how do we, as parents. It certainly, as parents, we don't quantify forgiveness. There's no limits to our forgiveness as parents, is there? No matter what our child does, it's still our child. And so, I mean, it's that's how it seems to me that's how God looks at it, but that from that eternal perspective. But this is, I mean, this is stuff to me. That's why I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. This stuff, to me, where we are in a conscience and all these things, this is real rubber-meets-the-road application of living of our faith. This really is. And this is part of our assignment. Part of being a, a person who walks with God as a man is to be wise, to be discerning, to be understanding, and to have a conscience that's strong and mature, where you have developed convictions that guide you in these non-moral areas. Nope, I've just made that decision. I, I just I want you to understand it. It has nothing to do with choices you make. It's just a decision my wife and I have made. And we just, for us, that's a wise way to live our lives. Hope you understand that. It has nothing to do. I, I'm just using, you don't even know what I'm talking about, but I just had that conversation with somebody. Somebody else, Andrew. Yeah, um,
3: there are so few... Rooms in the city right now, where this truth is being discussed and being received, and so with that assignment, I personally find it a little overwhelming mm. with some of the bad preaching out there. With this <laughs> okay. postmodern—I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's not even a challenge of conscience with some people. It's—I'm I'm, C.S. Lewis as they see through everything, so they see nothing. Exactly. And um, this postmodern—I will find what's right for me. I mean, where do we start? <laughs> with that assignment do we go riding off in all directions wildly or do we quiet I mean and and I'm not I'm not trying to plant a seed here I'm purely curious because it's in this world it's, it's it's almost difficult to share Christ because of the lack of reception
0: That's such a simple question to respond to, Andrew. <laughs> uh, I mean, it really is. I. Um, Thanks for dumbing down, down for us. <laughs> it, it, there, you know, honestly, there's no simple way to respond to something like that. I mean, obviously, step one is the importance of making a choice of where you are going to worship. I mean, where you are going to go to church. I mean, that becomes very, very important. Uh, I think I, I, know, I, think I remember where you're going to church, and that's a good choice. I know Bob Ruval. Well. It's a good choice. Um, but I, I say that because that, that then you, for you and your family, you've made a decision. For us, this is one of the ways in which we're the Holy Spirit is going to have an opportunity to use the teaching and preaching I'm exposed to to help develop God's perspective on things. So that I then in just the scenario that I've laid out. Um, I think secondly, for us in this. Um, I almost want to say desperately wicked society, but certainly the society in which we live where there is increasing in which every generation less and less of a focus on the things of God and more and more of a focus on the things of me and what's important to me. I think that's why it becomes so important how we live our lives as the salt and light that God can use in other people's lives. And I think how we live... When we live with convictions and we live with authenticity, I believe God's Holy Spirit can use that in other people's lives. Now, this is this is just a you know, made-up kind of scenario, but you know, you seem to be someone who has it all together. How, I don't have anything together. I'm just living for the moment. How do you do it? As Bill Faye says, you, you challenge it. Do you really want to know? <laughs> Do you really want to know? Or, or is this just a flippant question? Because if you really want to know, I am really excited to tell you. You may or may not like my answer, but do you really want to know? Yeah, I really want to know. It's Jesus Christ. Really? I ask you, do you really want to know? It's Jesus Christ. Do you mind if I share a little more? I, I just, Bill Faye suggests you go through those questions. You're asking permission. You're, you're recognizing their seeming autonomy, But you've asked that question, do you really want to know? I'll tell you, it's Jesus. And then, I mean, that's happened to me a million times in my life over the many years I've been in ministry, but there is that kind of authenticity that I think is at the heart of what Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. Salt is preservative, light exposes darkness. And it's in the context of the Beatitudes. That isn't the words we say. That's how we live our lives. That's the context of the Beatitudes. It doesn't mean we don't talk about Christ, but it's how we live it that becomes the salt and the light that the Holy Spirit will use that, it seems to me. Andrew, that's a simple... Two part answer. I don't an know.
3: horribly developed
0: question, so I. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I just I like don't know answers, how else. But I don't know how. I don't know how else to answer no, I it as a start. I mean because, it is. It, it. I mean Peggy and I talk about this quite a bit. It's. Uh, you almost sometimes get to the point where you just give up and say it's. It, it's it's really kind of bad out there. I'm seeing things I never thought I'd see in my life, and yet it's not. There is no difference between the way. Our culture and the culture in which Paul was writing this letter, it's the same. It's the same aspects, same characteristics. Because human condition hasn't changed in 5,500 years of recorded history. It hasn't changed. Everything else has technology and all that's changed, but the human condition hasn't changed. It's the same issue. Actually, I think
3: with technology, the opportunity for us to share the word mm. has never been better.
0: It's Exactly. No? Exactly. And there are some really neat things out there going on that are helping to facilitate that. I think one of the things churches need to do, and we're, we're really doing trying to do it with our church, churches need to do is how do we use the social networking for the cause of Christ? Instead of lamenting it, terrible what's out there. Yes, it is, but that's the way it is with everything. There's always a good thing and there's an evil aspect of it. But how can God use that in people's lives? And that's it's a great way to keep people in the church connected. It's a great way. To, you're, you're constantly telling them things. You're constantly sharing prayer needs with them. You're constantly updating them on things that are really important to them instead of lamenting, oh, do you see what was on Facebook? No, actually, I don't look at that stuff. I'm reading what my No, I'm just kidding. You know, we have yet to do anything in the Word today. Can I read verses 8 through 13 with you? Because then, after everything we've talked about, 8 through 13 is going to make sense. But food will not commend us to God. That's probably another one of those Corinthian slogans. We are neither the worse if we do not, or the better if we do eat. But take care. Thus this liberty of yours. What liberty? The liberty that you exercise to go into the idol temple somehow could become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, you know who the weak are? We've talked about that. Verse 10. For someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple. Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose Christ's, uh, sake Christ died. And thus, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, that I may not cause my brother to stumble. That takes us back to verse 1. Knowledge alone does not govern our exercise of liberty. It must be love. I'm thinking of the impact my liberty might have on a weaker brother or sister in Christ. And Paul, it seems to be saying, I mean, because again, the, the way he's talking about this, it isn't just eating the meat, it's everything else that goes with that in that person's life. They're going back into their old lifestyle. And Paul says you don't want them to do that. So you, the stronger brother, must be willing to surrender your rights for the sake of the weaker. All right? Tomorrow, we're going to look at chapter... Or I mean, uh, next Wednesday, we're going to look at you won't be here tomorrow, and I won't be here tomorrow. Chapter 9 is it connects with this. Paul now illustrates someone who is willing to give up their rights for the sake of others. And who is it? It's himself. He uses himself as an example. And he articulates his rights as an apostle. And then he lays out why he surrenders those rights and does not demand those rights. And it's just, it's an incredibly uh, autobiographical, very transparent section in Paul's writings. Because he kind of bears his soul here. It's very important. So I, I wish, I mean, it, the, the ideal way to do this is do 9, 10, and 11 in one session. But that's an absolutely impossible to do that. So we have to, we keep making these connections, but they're seven days apart each time we try to make the connection. So I six hope hour, six hour meeting. Yeah, <laughs> we do not have the freedom in Christ to do that, because you guys have other responsibilities. Was this what we did today? Is this making all these connections? Is this helpful? I mean, it's really, this is a very, very important section of Scripture. I just, especially this matter of conscience. I hope we gave you some things to think about. Pray for Woody here. Remember him. Um, uh, The rest of uh, you guys and the guys who are not with us, probably some of them are traveling for the holiday. Lord, we're thankful for this passage of Scripture Three times the word conscience is used. Obviously, it's a very important term to you. And the Apostle Paul has helped us to begin to think about an area that sounds mysterious and difficult, but in many ways it isn't. It's eminently practical. And in the practicality of it, we want to make sure that we're applying this to our own lives. Be with these men. They, they have lots of different connections, lots of people. They touch uh, individuals, some of whom are truly children of yours, others who are not. And how we represent you is so important. We think today of Woody. We're grateful that he's been through the surgery and all that's happened now. We trust that he's healing. His heart is strengthening, and we look forward to him coming back. But we think of him this holiday, especially tomorrow. It's good he's home. I trust that he'll have a good time with his family. Lord, continue to minister to him both spiritually and also physically. Restore him to full health if that's pleasing to you. We think of the other guys, some of whom um, probably are traveling. Uh, I don't know if any are going back to the East Coast, but if they are, we pray for them. It's going to be pretty rough today, to some extent even tomorrow morning, that we trust them to you. But for all of us, we ask for a special time tomorrow with family and friends as we enjoy a national day of Thanksgiving. May this not be just a day of food and football, but a day where we truly take a few moments at least to give you thanks for all of the blessings, all of your, your enablement, all of the special ways in which you served and ministered to us in these last uh, 365 days. We want to be a thankful people because we owe truly everything to you. And we want acknowledge that, affirm that, and even in a sense, worship and praise you because of that. And give us a good rest of this day, a blessed mar- uh, day tomorrow, we look forward to regathering again next uh, Wednesday. So go out in all we do. May we represent you well. In Christ's name, amen.